Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to be able to report that we have so many listeners, again, all over the world. I am still blown away by the fact that we have an audience in Sri Lanka. So please be in touch with us from there. If you're listening, let us know about your interest in the show. And the fact that we have so many listeners in Poland is really very powerful to me, especially from having ancestors who lived through World War II, the Holocaust, who uh, dealt with being a part of a nation where they were treated as less than human because of sudden groupthink and indoctrination. And so it is very powerful for me to see the amount of listeners we have in places that give me a, a feeling of hope for the future than in those places or in, I guess, around the world. And also, thank you to our big listenership in Sweden and in the UK, Canada, and Australia. We love all of our listeners and love to be able to point out where people are listening. So again, be in touch. Let us know about what brings you to the podcast in your part of the world. And for today, we have Meg Applegate. She is the CEO of Unsilenced, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to stop institutional child abuse by empowering self-advocates to promote lasting social change. The organization envisions a world where youth are free from institutionalization and the voices of young people are respected in the development of their own mental, emotional, and physical well-being. At the age of 15, Meg was abducted by two strangers in the middle of the night from her California home and was told that, quote, unquote, she was coming with them. She didn't know them. She didn't know why she was going, and she didn't know where she was going. Eight hours later, she found herself at a lockdown treatment facility in Boise, Idaho. Then six months later, she found herself in an additional behavioral modification program in northern Montana, where she spent the next three years. Yes, three years. After graduating college with a degree in psychology, Meg spent the next 17 years dedicating her life to serving on various nonprofit boards to help them with board development and recruitment and expanding their programs to further their impact. It wasn't until she was well into her nonprofit career that she woke up to the abuse and brainwashing that had plagued her childhood and the effect it had on her entire adulthood. It was then that she became determined to pair her love of giving back and helping those in need with her dedication to empowering other survivors of institutional abuse. Meg brings to Unsilenced an extensive background in nonprofit management, board development, and fund development. She is actively involved with and serves on the board of directors at Laura's House and the Shea Center. When she doesn't find herself fully immersed in new ideas for fundraising and development, Meg loves traveling to see new places with her husband and four children. You can find more info about Meg's organization at unsilenced.org. Here's Meg now.
It is so nice to be able to have you on the show today, Meg. I've been really looking forward to this conversation about this subject, hearing about what you've put together and also about your experiences. So lovely to talk to you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here too. Now, I know some people have been able to meet you or hear you, you know, but I don't know about my audience. So I would love for you to be able to introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about what brings you to this subject. And of course, we want to talk about your organization as well. So go for it. Awesome. Well, my name is Meg Applegate, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Unsilenced. And Unsilenced is a nonprofit that really focuses on stopping institutional child abuse and empowering self-advocates to promote lasting social change. And the reason why I'm really called to this is because when I was 15, I was actually woken up in the middle of the night by two strangers that let me know that we could do this the easy way or the hard way. And they then proceeded to throw me into the back of an SUV drive me to the airport and escort me to one of my two centers and programs that I would be at for the next three and a half years. And so I ended up in Boise, Idaho for about six months. And then after that, I went to Northern Montana where I spent the next three years. So pretty much the interesting thing about the second program was that while there was instances of me feeling like things were unfair. It really didn't occur to me until I was much, much older, what I had actually been through and endured as a kid. And so at that point, I was about 33 when I realized and kind of woke up to the abuse I felt like I had endured as a kid. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to start a nonprofit that is going to really make a difference in this area and make sure that kids aren't sent to these places. And then also that the kids that are going through these places are supported when they get out, because I think that's very much ignored as well. Okay. Okay. Oh, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> Let's start with your last point about not being supported when you get out. You know, there are a number of people who have spoken on this podcast about their imprisonment in these teen places. And, you know, I can't even call it treatment. Some have started having conversations with me for the podcast and then they just stopped. They realized it was so hard just to talk about it because they had, they didn't get help. They didn't have a way to process it, to get it out, to get uh, even um, kind of wonderfully desensitized just by telling the story over and over, which helps you kind of separate yourself from it. They're still so in it. And so I've told some of them, like, let me give you a referral, or if you want to work with me for a while, fine. And then if you want to come back on and tell your story, but you could just see something coming over them because of the trauma that was still just right under the skin, so so deeply embedded. And then there are other people who got support, who had family support, who got to meet with professionals, who got to connect with people like you, so they didn't feel alone, so they felt understood, and it has made all the difference. And so it is vital. It is vital because you otherwise, it's like people coming home from war. You have these walking wounded who are not getting what they need. And so I'm wondering, I know we're kind of going to the middle of the story, but just because I'm bringing this up now and then we'll go back. What is it that you got when you came out that you think was helpful? 
first of all, you're hitting on a really important part of the industry. And, and one of the defense mechanisms that the industry has is that a lot of times the abuse that we're enduring is from therapists. They're from professionals. And what that does is it really deters us from feeling safe around these individuals. In turn, what happens is when we get out of the program, we don't feel safe around therapists. And as soon as therapists start using those terms like accountability or feedback or those terms that just trigger things in us, we run. It's our defense mechanism to keep us safe. And it's exactly what the program wants because it kind of ensures we don't really talk about it to people who we should be able to trust to help. I think uh, the second part of what you said, one of the most fortunate things I've been able to have is my parents' support. I know how uncommon that is. My parents really made the best decision they could with the information they had back then. And they were told by multiple, quote, professionals that this was the only answer for me. And they were very much so given a life or death kind of decision, or so they thought, and they tried to make the right call. And I've never really blamed them. And because that forgiveness is there, we haven't seen that dismantling of the relationships between family members like I see with so many survivors. That's what gave me the courage and the power and the support to be able to feel comfortable speaking up. And so I can't imagine for survivors that don't have that building block of feeling close to your family, how hard it is to talk about what you've been through, especially when your own family doesn't care or they uh, say that you deserved it or fill in the blanks because families have a lot of responses to their own trauma. And some of them just deny that it even exists at all. So I definitely can empathize with how incredibly difficult that must be. And also, I think teenagers are just discounted anyway as being histrionic and troublemakers and don't listen to them anyway. So already you have to, you know, come from behind just to be heard. And then these programs, as you know, get there first. They'll contact the parents and talk about how, you know, you are this and you are that diagnosable thing. Or especially if you try to escape, you need to send them back. I work a lot with people who have been abused by their therapists in in treatment centers, in just general therapy or their psychiatrists, people who are licensed, people who also who are unlicensed, coaches and healers and whatever else people call themselves. And it doesn't mean that they're all bad, but that across the board, you're going to have people who really are sociopathic or who are narcissistic, who are just unqualified at the, I mean, to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if that's your worst offense that you're unqualified, okay, fine. You can be trained and you might be open to it. But the people who purposely destroy people's lives and take over their lives, trained or untrained, licensed or unlicensed, they are definitely out there. And I've done some videos about it and In my support group, there are a number of people who have been abused by people in these positions. And yes, they are terrified and for very good reason to find themselves back in any kind of work with a therapist, but also especially group work, which is especially terrifying. So doing a support group, I've needed to make all these safeguards and it's okay and don't worry and you can be late and, you know, and change your name. I don't need to know who you are. (laughs) You know, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay just to help someone breathe. So to come back to you, and I love that you started this organization. I want to, I want people to know more about it and we'll make sure to make time for that. When you said that you were kidnapped in the middle of the night, which still happens. Yep. Absolutely does. There's an organization here in LA that referred a family I was working with to someone who was going to just come and get their kids in the middle of the night. I mean, that was just this past year in a major city. So I'm wondering, first of all, why your parents 
felt that you needed to be kidnapped because everyone has a different reason about, you know, why that was and what they were doing or what their parents worried about at the time. As far as reasons why, it's a really actually interesting story because if I look back, having recently been diagnosed with autism, I look back when I was a kid and a lot of the things that were happening were really because of me being on the spectrum. So it's really interesting and heartbreaking actually to really look back and and realize that the reason why I was abused in effect was because I wasn't neurotypical. And so there's that underlying kind of theme that goes throughout all this just as a backstory. And then on top of that, you know, I started experimenting with drugs and I started smoking weed and I started drinking. I had drink, drank a few times and, you know, starting to push back on my parents and skip out on school. And there was one point where I skipped out on school and this was, California has this zero tolerance policy. And basically what it means is that if you consume any alcohol or any drugs during school hours, not on campus, but during the hours that school is is happening, you are immediately expelled. So this was back in the year 2000 and I had left campus and there was this guy who bought us beer. He ended up actually following us, drugging us and uh, sexually assaulting my friend and I. However, the school found out about both the sexual assault and the drinking during school hours. And I was actually expelled because of it, regardless of what happened after. And so at this point, my parents are confronted with the fact that I'm not only struggling, but now I have no school to go to. So that's when they kind of pulled the trigger and um, they just decided that the education consultant that they had used and the neuropsychologist and the neuropsychiatrist that they were talking to, they all agreed. And I think that there's varying degrees of culpability and that, you know, I think that the education consultant for sure is <laughs> complicit in this decision, but the neuropsychiatrist and psychologist, I think that they were just, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what else to do and what was causing it. And they knew I had ADHD, but they always thought that it wasn't everything going on. And now we know it was, it was me being on the spectrum. So basically in my head, everything that society has pathologized as, as part of like adolescence and being like kids acting out, the normal teenage behaviors are why I was sent away. So I ended up going to Intermountain Children's Hospital, which they actually don't have on their site, whether it's a psychiatric facility or if it's a residential treatment center, I'm not sure, but it was a lockdown like magnetic locked doors, full lockdown facility. And I was there for six months, which is an enormous time. Like that's so long. And at the time it was owned by CRC Health and now it is not. And interestingly enough, it's named Intermountain, but it's not part of Intermountain Health System from what I can tell. Their logo is completely different. So it's a little confusing, but yeah. So after that is when I went to Northern Montana to a school, I say that in quotes, um, a school called Chrysalis. And now it is, so the owners of my program back then sold it quite a few years ago to Embark behavioral health. And so now it is Embark Behavioral Health Interchange Chrysalis is what it's called. And it is part of the infamous NATSAP. It always has been. And so my experience with Chrysalis is much different probably than some recent survivors of Chrysalis because there is a new executive director now. And out of all programs I've heard about, Chrysalis is definitely the the most unique in that we live in a home. There's only 10 girls at the time when I got there. We live in a home with our therapists. 
they're a husband and wife. I shared a bathroom with my therapist for the first six months and I lived in a room next door to my therapist on the upstairs. So we are a quote, chrysalis family. The girls in the program are your quote, chrysalis sisters. So they very much so push this family dynamic on you. And looking back on it, it protected my red flags, right? Because it's not weird if I sat on my dad's lap. So when I'm sitting on the program owner's lap, I'm not thinking anything of it because he's my chrysalis family. And so it kind of protected a lot of the, what I feel like was abuse in that program. So now that it is owned by a bigger facility or a bigger company like Embark Behavioral Health, I don't even know how it has changed. However, however, I do know it got much bigger. By the time I left, there was like openings for 35 girls, I think. So it grew from 10 to 35 and it grew from one location to two. So it was definitely growing. But yeah, it's a very interesting program and in that it wasn't a lockdown. So it was completely different than Intermountain in that uh, when you get to a certain level on level two, which took me a year and a half, but once you get to level two, you're actually able to go to the public high school. You attend the public high school, which is really interesting. I've never heard of a program that has done that. And people are like, you were out in public, like unsupervised and you didn't like try to run. I'm like, okay, First of all, you don't get to level two for a year and a half. So at that point, I was completely brainwashed into thinking the Chrysalis program is the only program. And then you have all the other Chrysalis girls at school watching your every move. If you speak to or look at anyone that is on the unapproved list, then you are going to be confronted in circle and you're going to hear everyone talking about how you're making bad decisions and you could possibly lose a level. And you're not going to mess with that. Like they have all these controlled measures keeping you in this box, even when you're outside of it. Even going to college after I was in college and they were confronting me about things they had heard through the grapevine. I mean, the control was like wild. Yeah, right. And so when people say, well, why didn't you just leave, et cetera, I think people are not understanding the level of conditioning. And yes, there's usually a a very watchful eye and that you're going to get a lot of pushback or demoted. And it's very hard in these places, I don't have to tell you this, to reach certain levels. You have to work very hard. And if you know, it's like shoots and ladders, if you know you're going to slide back down really way easily, Uh, And you don't want to take the risk. And you're also supposed to prove something about your commitment to things. And they're probably going to report it back to your parents anyway. So, right. All these control mechanisms. Going to this idea of living with the couple who are your therapist. Mm, Okay. I know. (laughs) So weird, right? I mean, I have a reaction to that because I think in my neighborhood, if I happen to run into, let's say, a client at the supermarket, I duck. I I mean, if I see anyone, I'm just like, I need to give them their space, you know, like, no, no, no. And if we happen to run into each other and we see each other and I see quickly, they'll do something like they'll put their cigarette out. Like somehow I care. I don't want to be involved in their life in that way. I want them to have their privacy. But yeah, this idea of having a family, this is your family, then yeah, your defenses are going to be lowered. There's going to be a sense of connectedness of almost responsibility to your new parents in that way. Total boundary crossing in in every other way. And, and then it's hard to know what's normal. Exactly. Right. Is this normal to have a therapist who you're sharing a bathroom with and sleeping next to in the next room? And no, it's really not. But you just don't know that if this is one of your first forays into that world. You were talking about being brainwashed to believe a lot of things like being conditioned for that year and a half. Just to clarify before moving ahead, 
what were you already brainwashed to believe about yourself uh, and about yourself in the world, like how trustworthy you were, et cetera? That's really how they did their magic is by really breaking you down with what you think you are and they'll strip away everything. And then they'll say, okay, now you have a chance to build yourself back up and here are your tools. And they're the chrysalis tools and they give you the tool book and your toolbox. And you're like, okay, well, I feel so crappy right now. I'm going to go ahead and use the only tools that I have. You know, I heard everything from like, I'm an idiot. I heard idiot all the time. And so I believed everything they told me. So he would, both of them, Kenny and Mary, I remember telling me that I'm abrasive. I am intrusive. I, you know, I'm not a good friend that I'm so abrasive. People don't want to be around me. And that if I don't change, I remember this circle. Circle is the name for group therapy, which would sometimes go on for six hours. Right. But I remember the circle when they told me, Kenny said to my face, you have a chance to change your personality because the way that you are right now is not okay. And you're only 15. You have a chance to make yourself be lovable, you know? And I remember at that point in time, he was the only person I could trust, right? Because he's taking care of me in quotes. And so I made a decision right then. I was like, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to change who I am. But unfortunately, I wasn't changing who I was. I was actually just learning how to mask who I was. And I became at that point a sponge of the personalities around me because like I said, I'm neurodivergent and a lot of this I can't help. And so what it did is it made me wear a mask permanently and become like this prisoner to where now I'm 37 and I'm learning with my therapist who I even am under this mask and how that that mask has become fully fixed to my face. It's because of the ways that I was punished back then. If you do something wrong, it's forced labor. If you do this, you're going to have an extra two hours of gardening. You know, they just made you so scared to make a mistake that you became a perfectionist. Right. And also to not have the awareness to be able to say to you, you know, I'm wondering if you've thought about the fact that you might be on the spectrum. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, it's not like that's so unknown in society and so incredibly rare. And really, there's much, there should be much more of an awareness of that. You have this, this ability to look at things in another way, but it also does mean that you're going to interact in a different way. And there needs to be an awareness of that, but especially of a mental health professional, at the very least. Just an understanding of understanding you, understanding why, why you might have done what you were doing and interacting the way you were interacting or why things bothered you a certain way. Mm -hmm. I think they were really against anything that would differentiate any norm. They wanted all the girls to fit into this box. And I remember someone coming that was clearly on the spectrum, like to a point where I knew that they were likely on the spectrum and they never even mentioned it. I don't even know if they ever got diagnosed while they were there. But it's the same thing with like the medical neglect that I saw go on, both experienced and saw is like, if something's wrong with you, that means they need special care. And they aren't, I didn't feel like they were equipped to give special care. They needed people to be in the norm because then it would take more staff and it would take more time and specialized care that they didn't have. And so that's why... If I needed medical care, it's no, 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 you're fine, right? Because that requires more staff to be able to take me to the doctor. It's the same. They claim to treat a myriad of 
issues and disorders and all of this when you can't put people that have that need specialized care all together. Self-harm and, and, and suicidal ideation is not treated in the same way as depression or PTSD or OCD. So how can they claim that one setting is going to be a catch-all cure? Right. And it has says a lot about uh, what they're willing to take on. Yeah. They don't have the staff. And I think legally also, they don't want to have to admit that they know about something. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so much of it is just self-protection on their part, but I think also limited training because then it's the whole, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything has to be a nail. When you're talking about medical neglect, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. Go ahead. Happy to. <laughs> it was a, a large part of my experience. So when I went to Chrysalis, I was like 60 pounds overweight because when I was in the hospital, I was really heavily over-medicated. And then I also didn't have adequate exercise and healthy food. So I went in as an athlete. I was a soccer player and I gained 60 pounds in six months. Then when I went to Chrysalis, you're going from zero exercise to forced exercise every single day. And then I came in the summer as well. And then you're going on hikes on top of your exercise. I came in on the Glacier National Park trip, which is when you do trail work for 60 hours that week, you end that week trip with a 14 mile hike. And so I came so out of shape and I couldn't help that. That's nothing I was able to fix. And so Basically, I got labeled as dramatic right away because I was out of breath and I couldn't do things. And then I also always had underlying back pain. I didn't know why. And at one point we had horses um, at Chrysalis as a backstory. And at one point I was kicked by this horse named Sienna and I was kicked straight in my lower back by this horse and I fell forward. And obviously I've got, I'm shocked, right? I'm in pain as well. And I was really hurt. So I started screaming. They actually took that seriously because I was screaming at the top of my lungs and they almost air flighted me, but they didn't. They drove me an hour and a half to the nearest hospital and they did like an x-ray and they said, I'm fine. And so at that point, I was the biggest drama queen in the world, right? Because the doctor didn't find anything wrong. And therefore I had to shut up about my back pain for the next three years. And I had to pretend like I didn't have any pain. And, you know, come to find out I had back pain, obviously through college and up until when I was 24. And I had to get a double spinal fusion because my L5 was floating around unattached. And the neurosurgeon told me, if you would have fallen over and just like bumped your butt, and I had been snowboarding, I was forced to snowboard every weekend too at Chrysalis. So like if I had been uh, fallen over and hit it in the right way, I could have severed my spinal cord. And so because Kalispell Hospital didn't catch this, they labeled me as dramatic. Then there's the fact that I rolled my ankle when I was trying out for the basketball team. It hurt four weeks in a row. It's still black and blue and huge. So I went to Kenny and I said, hey, I, I know it's not, it's, it's not a big deal, but I just can't, you know, walk on it still. And I was wondering, do you think when someone could take me to the urgent care just to have it checked out? And he goes, no, absolutely not. We don't go to the doctor unless it's for a broken bone and you can't break your ankle. And I walked away. I was like, okay. And then I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, you can actually, you can, you can definitely break an ankle, <laughs> but like, and then, you know, come to find out five years ago, I had a four inch tear in my tendon and my ankle and I had to have it repaired. So, you know, I'm in my adulthood and I'm having to fix all these wounds, both emotional and actually physical from what I went through as a kid. And 
you know, I also come to find out that all that pain, all that joint pain I was going through and all the ankle rolling that was going on was because I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and I have a connective tissue disorder. So all of this stuff wasn't caught, right? And granted, it's a hard, it's a hard disorder, especially back then to catch, but pain should be listened to and you need to follow that pain and you need to let people be their own advocate and be able to communicate that pain and get help for it. And that was definitely not done. Um, There was a a chrysalis sister of mine, actually, this is a horrendous story. She was a hardcore runner and she knows better than to say she's in pain, just like me. So she stopped. uh, So she didn't tell Kenny that she was in pain when she was running and she just ran through it for the whole season until she woke up one day and looked in the mirror and realized that her leg was half the size of the other one. And she goes, Ooh, I better go actually ask, go to the doctor. And they took her to the doctor, took an orthopedic doctor. And she had um, actually broken her femur (laughs) and it, and something in her feet, it was, I think it was her femur in her hip area. And so then they did surgery and to fix it. Right. And then as soon as she got her walking boot off, uh, Kenny came to her and said, we're going skiing. And she said, well, I, I just got my boot off. I can't go skiing. And he said, well, your boots off you know, you're good to go. And so he made her go on the mountain and she started going down, you know, taking really slow and just like taking big turns. And he came over to her and this is what she told me. He said, he, she said, he said that you better go straight down the mountain right now, basically implying that she's being dramatic. Uh, You're going to get in big trouble if you don't. And so she listened, she went straight down. And um, after a couple seconds, she heard a crack, a fall, and she had to be tobogganed down the mountain and she got to ride in, in his car home, which was the suburban, which was just her and him. And then nothing much was said, but he stopped at a gas station and he bought her uh, Dr. Pepper and some M&Ms for her silence and came into the house <laughs> and basically defended ev- defended her in front of everyone and said, if anyone touch- even touches her leg, I'm going to kick your ass. You know, that's what I'm told that he said. So those are the kind of things that happened. And that's just not even accounting for the fact that he- we would be forced to cut wood in like negative 40 in Montana winter and be outside for long periods, bale hay all day, like 80 pound bales of hay. We'd have to do all day long gardening all day long. Like there was so many, so many physical labor things that we had to do. The medical neglect was even worse because we were having to do all this hard labor and we're children. (laughs) So it's like, we're going to get injured, (laughs) you know? And you don't have a choice. You have nowhere to go. I mean, here, you know, he's telling her supposedly, right. Like you have to ski straight down the mountain. She, I mean, even if you get a boot off or if you just, you know, get the all clear from a doctor, you still are healing (laughs) and you still have to be careful and you still have to follow by doctor's orders. So for this person to just say, no, you have to listen to me, even though he clearly didn't know about anything about anything, but, you know, had this seems sadism, there is the sense that, you know, you have to listen. And then fine if he gets her soda and M&Ms, what he needed to do was take full responsibility, you know, pay for all of her care, aftercare, make sure that she got to go home and really get proper care and not just have to, you know, pretend to be the hero in front of other people, which, you know, when someone treats you differently in private than, than they act in public, then you don't trust them, of course, right away. You can see that they're doing things for show. And so I don't know if you 
realized how much he was making himself non-trustworthy, among other things. What I, I think is also so interesting about what you're talking about, about you know, also having just pain in general and having to do so much labor. So about the pain first, there is so much pain that people are in also when they are depressed and when they're anxious. And they can also have back pain, neck pain, a lot of things just from nerves and also just from chemicals released during depression and stomach issues, et cetera. So there isn't an awareness or an interest, I think, in the causal relationship, You know, putting you in harm's way, causing you to be kicked or hurt, uh, break something, but also just be in pain that comes from a release of adrenaline in your system because of feeling anxious or because of a chemical release because of depression, but because of what they're doing to you. But instead, there was just a focus on you as being dramatic or being the problem or being weak. So there's that part. And the other part is, you know, let's say you're chopping wood in minus whatever insane degrees. How is that helping you? I mean, is that what your parents were hoping that you were going to get from going there that you were going to, you know, get frostbite. It sounds like at no time were you asked, what do you need? What would be helpful? Are you getting what you want from this place? Is it somehow helping you in your life in some way? But there was no conversation, but just demands about how you were supposed to behave and the tasks that you were supposed to accomplish. And to what end? Like the big picture that all, that all gets lost. Like, is this helping at all? You're kind of bringing up this crazy revelation in myself as I'm sitting here listening to you because it's like, I don't think I ever was asked. Like, how do you feel like you need to be supported? What can we do to better support you? Like, what do you need? I don't think I was ever asked that. And it was almost always about what do you think you need to change to make others around you more happy? It was constantly around that. And, you know, I, I thought I had lost my journals from the three and a half years of being sent away. And I recently came across them and like, holy trauma spiral, right? Um, but I, I read them and it made me realize like, because these journals weren't private. So Mary was my therapist and she would read my journal every Friday and then she would comment and, and red ink and she would put like, she'd comment on it and say her thoughts on everything that I would say. And so I got to read her feedback to my thoughts every week. And so I got to kind of rehash that. And I realized it was all about you need, how do you better, how do you be a better person? So people were more like you more, how do you fit in more? What do you need to change? And another interesting thing that you mentioned is the depression. And I have never struggled with depression um, in my entire life. I'm, I'm very lucky that I don't have to have that issue um, on top of the other ones that I have. And the only time I ever have is postpartum depression. And it, once I treat it, it goes away, thankfully. But it's interesting reading my journals because I didn't remember how depressed I was. And I was saying that I was depressed and I'm hopeless and things that I don't feel like as an adult. And granted in the hospital, they actually diagnosed me as bipolar disorder, which I don't have. And so I was on super high doses of medicine, right? So that could have played into depression as well and causing that. But um, how much I talked about, I don't feel loved. I wish I was at home. I, I it's been so, I, I read this exact words like of saying, I wish I could be hugged. I wish that I could feel more loved in my life. 
And then it would come back and I would hear things like, well, you know, I wonder how you can change to better be able to do this and that and that. And, and then I remember also complaining about how I didn't feel Kenny liked me. Kenny had favorites and his favorite girls, he treated much differently than people like me. And I had to try 10 times as hard to get any kind of praise. And I wanted that praise so badly, of course. And I would rehash all the things Kenny had said to me. I remember one one of the entries I wrote is I said, I'm really upset right now because we were at breakfast and I accidentally spilled syrup when I was putting syrup on my plate onto the placemat. And Kenny called me a pig. And I was saying this in my journal and she never comments on it. Like all the times I'm saying that her husband is making me feel depressed. I'm sad. I don't feel loved. The things he's saying, I feel like are cruel. All this stuff, it's never addressed, which is so interesting because in my opinion, if she truly valued my health and my safety and me getting quote better, whatever that is, that that would be something that she would want to address. And I don't know if she did behind the scenes as possible with him, but it's, it was never addressed with me. And it was all about how I can change to make my relationships better. I'm so glad we're talking about this because it is always that way in these groups. It is always that way, actually in abusive relationships. It's always that way in cults and it is always on you. There is zero compassion and there is zero responsibility taken, zero awareness of the causal relationship, also of situational diagnoses, that you can have situational depression, you can have situational anxiety, and you can even seem bipolar because of the roller coaster that they're sending you on, where you're going to get boosted up just because you're able to like be treated okay that day. So you're going to be on a high and just out of relief, and then you're going to get slammed down. So people a lot of times have symptoms that mimic bipolar, and it's also situational because you notice that when you leave it, the symptoms often will go away. (laughs) Yes, Right. And so there are a lot of times people will find themselves, let's say, in psych hospitals and I'll get contacted and they'll be diagnosing these people right and left. And I'll ask what brought them there. And I'll say, would you mind putting the word situational before all these diagnoses until further notice that they were just in a situation where they were held against their will. Now they're being held against their will and you're finding them oppositional. Can you put situational? They're scared again. And you're making them feel scared. And maybe you think you're saving them from themselves, et cetera, but you just took them out of jail, put them in another jail. And I think they're feeling hopeless. So just give them a chance to just be and to see if you can offer them a safe space, a safe connection, a safe conversation, and see if that changes things. You just triggered something else, of course, um, from the first program, Intermountain Hospital. They, you know, like every other kid in 2000s, I was diagnosed with um, oppositional defiance disorder, right? AKA, I'm a teenager. And <laughs> exactly. um, so when I went in, you know, here's this traumatic experience. I was kidnapped in the middle of the night. I was transported. I am around people who are obviously needing mental help. Like that was very scary for me to be around people who are talking to their dead fiancés and their dead boyfriend. Like it was scary. There was actual high needs of um, in, in that facility. So it was, it was almost like watching like a horror movie for me. So I'm going through that. And I kept hearing about how 
I need to change the fact that I always want control. And now I'm thinking here, of course I wanted control. I was grasping at being able to control anything in my life. And so they said that so much that they actually put me on a program called Desk Space. And it was a desk space with random draw. And random draw was that I sat at the desk 24-7 every single day And I had to choose out of a, it was a medical bag, you know, those um, biohazard clear bags. They would put a bunch of pieces of paper and uh, had yeses and nos to them. And the doctor decides what ratio of yeses and nos it is. So it starts off with one yes and nine nos. And anywhere, anytime I have a chance to program or go to PE or OT or therapy or to the cafeteria, whatever, I would have to choose out of that bag and hopefully get the one yes that was out of the 10 pieces of paper. So as I did better in the program, they would add more yeses into it, but I had to be giving up control. And so it's, so it was all out of a theory that by taking all control from me that I would give, I mean, let's be honest, create learned helplessness is what they were after. Right. And, um, the interesting thing is thinking back to it after what you said is that I already didn't have control. And so it, forced me into the depths of depression, right? Because I already felt out of control and then they stole more from me and said, no, it's not enough. Right. Yeah. Just to have your rights fed back to you like crumbs. Like here's a little gift that we're going to give you something back that should never have been taken away to begin with. And then maybe you'll be grateful or you'll feel relieved, but then you'll have like Stockholm syndrome. And again, I just want to sort of zoom out and I've gone to some places where I think, what is happening here? What is the big picture? What are they creating? Or are they just catering to the fact that, you know, they have said, we're going to get your kids in some kind of shape really through any means necessary. And the fact I mean, I think that they get away with the through any means necessary because of the secrecy. And I'm wondering about that for you. So it would be typical for you to have not been able to have the freedom to talk about what was happening there with people who may have wanted to step in and help you. Tell me about communication and how that was handled. I don't even remember having very many phone calls with my parents. That might not be correct, right? Because I I do have a lot of... um, memory loss from that time. I was on very high doses of trileptol and Seroquel and all of these things like at the same time. So it was, I've, I've definitely lost a lot of uh, memories from that time and only regained them through my journals. I remember I was on 1200 milligrams of trileptol. I was, I was like 125 pounds when I went into there too. So it was, and they decided on the second day that I was bipolar. And I remember when I would take the Seroquel, the second dose I would take at night, and I it was like a race against the clock because we had to go to the community room and sit there for a while after meds. And then I'd have to race against the clock to get to my room. And I remember always being next to the wall and I would drag my, I still remember what it feels like to have my fingertips slide on that wall, on that textured wall. And I would try to get to my room before I fell over and because it made me so dizzy. And it's just like the things that you remember, right? And I remember that texture of that wall as it held me up as I tried to make my way back to the room. And and reading these journals too, it's so interesting. I'll say, I feel so tired. I'm so sick. They're going to get mad at me because I feel like I want to fall asleep. And, and then you see my handwriting change and it goes off the page. And like, it's just so sad. It's so sad. 
And so I don't remember talking to my parents much at that program, but at Chrysalis, you were not allowed to have unmonitored phone calls with your parents until you were on level three. And it took me two and a half years to get to level three. So I remember about a 30 minute phone call once a week and Kenny or Mary were on the phone with you. I never was dumb enough to try to say anything on the line, but I knew of times when there had been reported to me and they just hang up and they get upset with the girl and then they'll call the parents and they'll say, as I warned you of manipulation, this is manipulation, you know, those kinds of things. But I really wasn't allowed to have any kind of real conversations with my parents The interesting thing is, is, and this could be because I am on the spectrum and I've obviously always been on the spectrum, but back then, and if I think about it in my 15-year-old brain and I tap into that part of myself, I don't know if I thought it was wrong. I didn't think it was wrong yet. I don't think I had the social awareness yet to understand that what I was going through was abuse. I thought that because I trusted these people that the people that are in positions um, that people usually trust in society, I just had this blind trust. And I didn't even think twice, to be honest. It felt bad because I was being like not accepted, but I never thought like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And it almost made it more depressing because it was like, this is life, right? This is this is what it's, it's not situational for me. It's not, oh, come on, Meg, you just have to get through this next three years and then you'll be free and you can have a normal life. No, I thought that that was life. That was what I was going to go through. And I think that that's what made me so depressed. And I don't think it's any surprise that I went on to have two different abusive relationships, two different marriages that failed and having lots of encounters with narcissists in my dating and marriages. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because when, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book right now, I'm writing a memoir. And so when you're doing that, you kind of go back to these scenes and you try to pick apart your brain. And I think back to when I was around Kenny and all of the things that Kenny was, is what I chose. That was the relationship that was modeled at, especially as being one that I so badly coveted. I wanted to be accepted by Kenny. And so when I went on to my dating world beyond Kenny, it was like I was instinctively looking for someone that would treat me so amazing and then push me away and then treat me amazing and then push me away. And that became my type. And so that's something else that people don't realize is that not only is potential abuse happening in these facilities, but we're also modeling really toxic behaviors and toxic relationships that kids are going to go on to model and do the same thing. I don't think we think about that. When people are born and raised in groups like this, or they've come in during their formative years, like their teen years, it is true that they don't know there's something different. They don't know that something falls under the rubric or the qualification of abuse or neglect. They don't know what a therapeutic relationship is supposed to look like. They don't know what their rights are. They don't know that they have constitutional rights, actually, and that you have freedom of movement, you have freedom of speech, you have all these things that are taken away. And yeah, I can imagine if you're thinking this is the way it is, I'm sure life seemed very bleak, which is very, very sad. Well, Andy had so much control over the rest of the life too, it felt like at that point. There are girls that I've talked to who they did make the decision to leave. 
chrysalis before it was, uh, they'd run away. And it was a big rule in chrysalis. And Kenny would say this, there's no bolts and chains on these walls. Chrysalis girls are expected to stay in their beds. And so that was a big thing we always heard. And if you left your bed, you will leave chrysalis. You will go to a wilderness or some other program and you will never be welcome back. And so that was scary in and itself. And I've spoken to girls that have left and girls that have had full ride scholarships to really good schools, like really smart girls and so excited to go and go to secondary education. And from what I have been told, Kenny has called them and told lies about them and they have lost their entire scholarship. So it's like, we would have these chrysalis sisters that we were bonded to and we were supposed to be bonded to. We were called chrysalis sisters for a reason. And if they made a mistake or they were kicked out of chrysalis, we had to excommunicate them. And Kenny would flip a switch and he'd come back in and say, they basically, they are dead to us and they're a bad person. They're a, a whore. They're whatever. He would say whatever he wanted to say. I've seen it happen where it's a well-loved girl by Kenny and then they make this mistake and all of a sudden it's done. Like, and we're not allowed to like talk about them in a positive way anymore. Incredible. Right. And again, so what do they get from that? How do they benefit from that? Like what, how, how is Kenny behaving in any way that is sort of a positive and strengthening intervention? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just curious before you go back to sort of how you got out and what's happened since what's with Kenny. They both, sold the program uh, many years ago. And from what I remember, they got a very large sum of money for that. And now they, I, I believe, live their time half time in Kalispell and Whitefish and then Mexico. So they're just living the dream. And that's a really hard part for me, right? Um, especially because as soon as I woke up, I'm like, I want to do something about this. But unfortunately, because of the statute of limitations, I really can't. And so it's hard. And it's it's hard because I also woke up after I could have, uh, after the time ran out on being able to get my records, they're all destroyed. So it made it extra special when I came across my journals to be able to regain at least some memories. And to have proof, should the statute of limitations change? Because I know that it's being reevaluated in some places because it doesn't make any sense that there is one anyway in most situations. Anyway, what happened? So you were finally able to get free of this. I'm sure that it was hard for you just to be back in the world and be back with your family and the transition to kind of landing back on earth. What was that like? I mean, I work alongside Yanya Lalich as well. So I hear a lot about cult survivors and kind of the way that they react. And my reaction is almost like them. I feel like I went straight to college <laughs> from this. So I was thrown into the social world where I had no idea what was going on. And basically I thought relationships were supposed to be A, but they were really C. And I thought you were supposed to do A when you're in conflict, but it was really B. And so I had to relearn the entire world. And then I also had these fallacies that I believed about myself as well. And I was very much so indoctrinated at that point. So much so, you'll find this interesting. I don't usually say this on podcasts, but I'm going to say it now, that I was in Montana for college. I graduated from Carroll College. And in my first year, I got a call or I got an email from Mary and Kenny, and they wanted my help in the Montana State Legislature. And they asked for me to tell my story because I was such a success story from Chrysalis. And they asked me if I would tell my story in the Montana State Senate to try to strike down a bill that would try to regulate the industry. And guess what? I did. 
I definitely did because I thought in my head, oh my gosh, are they going to accept me now? Maybe I'll be one of the girls that Kenny really likes after this, you know? And it's sad, but it's also kind of beautiful because now with my work I'm doing right now, it's like, it's definitely getting even, if you know what I mean. And, and trying to, trying to set the record straight. And it also shows how deep it is, how deep that indoctrination goes, especially when it happens during those years of childhood and it becomes like a part of you, right? It isn't something added on. It really becomes a part of your personality, a part of who you are. And so I think that it almost protected me being so indoctrinated, I'd have to say, that I focused on college. I graduated with honors. I have, I, with the Saikai National Honor Society, Graduate, I went into graduate school, had to drop out because of health reasons, but like I was focused. And I immediately went into nonprofit world and throughout the next 17 years, sat on multiple nonprofit board of directors and just really took off. And now, you know, I ended up being the vice president, managing director of a foundation and I'm glad I woke up when I did though, because through all of that, I was able to get my career underway instead of waking up in the beginning and kind of spiraling at that point, right? That I had learned at least how to act in a civilized way within business, which really helped me um, because I think the arrested development that I got at the point of childhood would have been catastrophic in my professional career if I had to go through that like in the beginning versus at the very end or in the middle, I guess I should say. I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah. So I think it almost protected me in a way. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So that whole idea that you were asked to speak and you did, I mean, yes, it would be easy, I think, for you to look back and kind of wonder why you did it or blame yourself for it. It's so interestingly diagnostic though, and fits so perfectly on so many levels, because yes, you're still conditioned to do the thing that's going to make them happy with you, which is that intermittent gratification thing, which is also going to cause you to be connected or attracted to people later on, where when you get their approval of you, it feels so damn good because it's so hard to get. So, and we can talk more about that another time, but that's a whole other thing. But also it shows how completely out of touch they were and how much damage they did that they thought that they could just be in touch with you and have you speak on behalf of the program because you had a great experience? What? Yep. It goes further. They actually contacted me through email when I was a freshman. And obviously I, was, I, I had started to drink and have fun and go to parties with my friends as I got reacclimated to society. And um, Mary reached out to me and she said, I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, tell your side of the story because it's been said to me that you have begun to drink and you are partying and I wanted you to be able to hold yourself accountable. And of course I fawned all over her and I was just, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm such, I've made such a big mistake. I'm so sorry. So back to the idea of boundaries, I have never once contacted a client after they were done with therapy to say, I've heard you're doing this and you need to continue. Do you need my help? Never once, because that is such a huge boundary crossing and uh, let people have their life and their sense of agency. If they want to be back in touch with you, they will. But yeah, of course you were phoning. I mean, you know, you were trained well. So you came out of this, you were having life. You were getting together with friends. 
doing your thing, enjoying your freedom. And then what? I started realizing that I had so much anxiety just all the time. And, and then the anxiety turned into panic attacks and the panic attacks turned into agoraphobia and the agoraphobia turned into never wanting to be around anyone. And, and my life was in shambles, but professionally I was sound, right? You always keep up this professional, um, mask as it was. Right. Um, but my personal life was going downhill and, you know, I was on my second marriage and I was a single mom of three kids at that point. And I started spiraling, just absolute spiraling. And I just couldn't realize, I I didn't realize what Chrysalis, really Chrysalis had done. And the other program, yes, but really Chrysalis was such a long time that it's so profound on me. So what had happened is I started spiraling. And then one of my really dear friends who was a Chrysalis sister of mine, I remember saying to her, do you think, do you think Chrysalis, like the things that happened were like, okay. And she goes, no, it was, it was abuse. And I was like, what? I was like, why, why haven't we talked about this? And she said, because you weren't ready. She's like, I've known since I was there, um, but I've just kind of been waiting to be able to talk to you about it. And that was like a point in my brain where I was in time and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm brainwashed, you know, for lack of a better term. And so then we started talking about it. And at that point, it, it wasn't even fully realized. I didn't know there was such thing as a trouble teen industry or that I was a survivor even at that point. And I didn't even know there was other programs. But what really caused me to wake up was um, one of my chrysalis sisters when I was 33 committed suicide. That caused me to take a look. And all of a sudden that all my stories, the narrative shifted and it turned inside out. And instead of my motto of I am who I am because of chrysalis, it became I am who I am despite chrysalis. And at that point, it really changed And it continued to just stay at that level a little bit until Paris Hilton's documentary came out. And when I saw someone of like celebrity status going through the exact same thing with the kidnappers saying the exact same thing to her as they said to me, I realized, oh my God, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. And oh my gosh, the community cares, like society cares And then I started looking into stuff and then I started realizing this is an industry. And then I started realizing there's so many different programs out there. And then I realized that this is an actual health crisis. (laughs) It's a health crisis. And um, that's when my love of philanthropy that was already very well-developed really enmeshed with my newfound purpose, which was stopping institutional child abuse. And it all of a sudden From that point, I obviously did a lot of therapy. I did a lot of processing before I felt comfortable starting my own organization. I I remember at one point I was doing three hours of EMDR a week just to make sure that I don't enter into something unprepared. So I heavily therapized myself (laughs) and then decided that I wanted to make this my purpose. And I think as soon as I made it my purpose, that's when the real healing began, that it wasn't just the processing. The processing had pretty much been done, but I wanted to start healing. And by the work that I do with Unsilenced, and and this is really seconded by all my people, all my teammates, that the work that we do at Unsilenced really helps us help ourselves. And we find healing 
through being able to prevent other kids from going or getting kids out of programs or helping parents realize that there was trauma with their kid and perhaps reuniting them. Like these things bring us so much joy that it allows us to heal that 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, however old you were, and being able to finally let them be in the driver's seat a little bit and, and get some of that healing. It's incredible. There's something very powerful about doing, about doing something, knowing that you're doing something that is going to be turning the tide for other people, that's going to be doing education, that's going to be doing prevention. I mean, that there's something very powerful, especially with the limitations put on you by the statute of limitations, knowing that you can do your work to prevent other people from being in that situation to begin with is a great form of justice of getting back, of taking away the clientele that they can do this to, if possible, by doing educating of the public and also helping people be able to discern, I think, to what's healthy from what's unhealthy. And especially at young ages, like you're saying, where there isn't an education about that, but for that to be provided or available to families, to people who are young so that they can detect what is really sick, what's really sick about a place or what's going to make them sick. And I think it's great that you have all these services that you have jumped in in this way to really advocate and to grow something which is really needed. One day, hopefully it won't be needed. Uh, you know, it's one of these things like the therapy that I do that I'm, you know, I'm happy to do it and happy to continue doing it. I wish it weren't necessary. So it's really wonderful also to to have you have an organization like this where you're calling it as it is. So, so nice to talk to you. So nice to hear about what you're doing, what you've come through, and to just explore things together, which is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's so awesome to be on the show. And um, I'm just super honored. I'm super honored to be here. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Meg. Meg, thank you so much for talking to me today and talking to all of us and for all the work that you are doing. I'm so sorry you went through what you went through. It is head spinning on so many levels. And there are some things so important that I'm hoping to expand on at some point in the near future about when people are exposed to the kind of therapy that people like Meg were exposed to early on, not knowing what healthy and normal boundaries are in a therapeutic relationship and no living with a therapist, sharing a bathroom with a therapist, <laughs> mm, sitting on the lap of a therapist. No, no, and no. But if this is what you knew, and if this is where your parents sent you, you might think this is how it's supposed to be. So there are so many people who will go for therapy not knowing that they actually have the right to have their own space, to have their own thoughts, have boundaries physically, emotionally, etc. And it's something that has become so important for me to teach people about. And again, it's something that I've done some workshops about and talked about at conferences, and I'll be doing more about it. 
There is something also very telling about the fact that Meg's organization is called Unsilenced. It's like the other organization that we've highlighted here on this show, Breaking Code Silence. There's something about being silenced that becomes a repeated theme when people, when perpetrators, when abusers want to get away with whatever, actually, they want to get away with by keeping you silent, by either convincing you that you are supposed to keep things private and that's the only way you can prove that you're an independent person, that you don't have to tell people everything, or that the person you're going to tell it to is not going to understand and they're going to try to take something away from you, so you need to keep it private, or just monitoring your communication like they do at so many of these teen treatment centers. And making sure that then you stay silent because it's not safe to say what's really on your mind and what's really true. The need to communicate is incredibly important. In fact, it's fundamental to being a human being. There's so many reasons that we need to communicate. We do it so often because we are communal beings. And that's why language was developed so early on because we needed to find a way to express ourselves, to share feelings, to say what's true, to connect with others. There is this language that I heard about years ago. And in fact, I have something in my office. I have a framed print of a scarf that has Chinese writing in it. And it's a secret language called Nushu, N-U-S-H-U. And Nushu was something that I had learned about years ago that I always thought was truly fascinating because it was developed as a way for people within China, women specifically, to be able to communicate about their sorrows. So Nushu is a 400-year-old script. It was invented as a secret language and It was a way for women to be able to talk to each other, send messages to each other, and be able to pierce isolation. It was invented in China's Hunan province to help peasants, actually, in secluded villages deal with the fact that their feet were bound and they were confined to their rooms, to their homes. Sometimes it was scrawled on the ground with ash using tree branches. Sometimes it was written into folding fans or embroidered on handkerchiefs and then actually evolved into poetry. It's a part of Chinese history that actually most people in China are not familiar with, but certainly people all over the world are not familiar with. There was a code given out about how to like a key, how to translate each of the different symbols so that other women could translate the messages that they were being given. And then they could write in that language to others. It's like the stories you hear of people who are being held against their will or who are imprisoned and they develop a language of just knocking or scratching and each amount of knocks, it's like an SOS. What letter does it correspond to, then how do you spell out those words? There is the need, absolute need, for communication. What's also true, though, is that you see how important communication is because of how much it intimidates and scares people trying to control you and manipulate you, trying to get away with abusing you. 
And so many people who are in situations where they might expose somebody who's doing something bad to them, they're very often talked about like they're pathological liars, like they can't be trusted. Like so many of these teens in these teen treatment centers, there is the reason for that, of course, that then when people who are going to the adults in their life and are saying, or to the friends in their life and saying, this is happening to me, they're going to be discredited. They're going to be discounted because the controller, the manipulator has already gotten there first and has convinced people that can't be trusted, that they're not going to tell the truth or they're going to exaggerate or that they lie. There is a quote that I came across recently, and I don't know who, where it originated. I don't know who wrote it, but I liked it because it gets right to the point. Nobody trashes your name more than someone who's afraid you'll tell people the truth about them. It happens time and time again. So think about that too. If you think that there's someone who's coming to you whose reputation has already been trashed in your eyes, and they're coming to you to tell you about something that has happened to them, wonder why someone needed to come to you first to say, don't trust them if they come to you. Don't trust what they say. Don't believe them. Hold out a moment of possibility that it could be that what they're saying is true. Might not be, but it could be. And it could be that the person who has come to you first to tell you not to believe them is the one who's doing this to them. Just open that as a chance, as that possibility to give that person the ability to be seen and to be heard and to possibly be believed so that they don't then get pushed into silence again because they know that no one is believing what they say. Thank you so much to Meg and to all others who are doing this incredible work. And I hope to talk to Meg again soon. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.